thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, as always, a privilege to share the Word of God, especially on this wonderful Easter morning. You might have found it strange a few moments ago that we read through 1 Samuel chapter 8. You probably thought, Pastor, it's Easter. I, I came to hear about Jesus. And don't fret. I promise you, we are going to get there. We're going to be remembering the story of the resurrection this morning. But before we get to that, I want to provide for you two foundational truths that help us better understand the Easter story. The first truth is this. Easter was a long time coming. The events we're looking at in 1 Samuel 8 take place about a thousand years or so prior to what we think of as the Easter story. But the Easter story finds its beginnings another 3,000 or so years even before that. The Easter story directly ties back to the Garden of Eden. Allow me to summarize that story for us so we're all on the same page here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be plants, and there were plants. Now, I'm going through it quickly here, but you, you get the gist there. So on and so forth. For six days, God created the foundation of everything we know of in this universe. God created it. He said it, and it was so. We know that man was a special creation by God. It was something special when he made man. It was special because God created a bunch of wonderful things. We can look out in the world. We can see all this wonderful sights around us, the heavens declaring the glory of God. But we know that man is special because man was created in the image of God. The only thing created in the image of God. This means humans, humanity, are distinct from the rest of creation because we're able to commune with God as being made in the image of God. He gave us mental and moral and social faculties that the rest of creation does not have. That means he made us as rational creatures. He made us with morality built into our being. And we have a desire for fellowship. At this point in history, God made Adam and Eve and he looked at what he had made and God said to his special creation, this is very good. This is very good. You're probably thinking, Brad, this doesn't sound like Easter. Is this where God created the, the bunny or something? No, there were no egg-laying chocolate bunnies in the Garden of Eden, okay? Bear with me here. When you read through the first few chapters of Genesis, you see God had a very close and special relationship with his special creation, Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the garden. There was harmony in the world. God had just one rule for Adam and Eve. He told him, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of that tree, you shall die. To make a long story short, we talked about this with the children and the children's question a little bit earlier. But one day, Eve was approached by the serpent in the garden. We learned later in scripture that serpent she was approached by was Satan. 
He convinced Eve to disregard the warning that God gave them about the fruit and to take a bite. And she obliged. And then she uh, got Adam looked and followed her right along with her for the first time in the history of all history. In that moment, mankind, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They did something he commanded them not to do. They acted against God's holy nature. And that's what sin is, falling short of the glory of God. There were major consequences to our first parents. Their communion with God would be separated. They experienced spiritual death. They didn't walk with him in the garden. But they would also face physical consequences. There would be increased pain in childbirth. Working the ground would be much more strenuous. It would be difficult. There would be sweat on the brow. And someday they would experience a physical death. They would die a physical death. So where does Easter come in? Well, when Adam and Eve were faced with the consequences of their sin, they weren't the only ones cursed. God addressed that serpent. God addressed Satan in the garden. He said to that servant, he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What that means is God is promising to that serpent. God is promising to Satan some 4,000, actually 6,000 years ago. I can't do math. That that serpent will be defeated. At some point in the future, from the moment where God makes this declaration, from this moment in the beginning of history from our perspective, the snake crusher is coming. Eve is going to have children, and then her children will have children and children and children and children. While they are going to be dealing with the temptation of Satan and the results of sin all around them, they can have faith in God because he said the snake crusher's coming. In his perfect timing, the deliverer was going to be coming. Easter was a long time coming. Hold on to that. Because we're going to move on to a second foundational truth that helps us better understand the Easter story before we tie them both together. Number two, humans are wretched creatures. I know what you're thinking. Who is this guy? I'm trying to enjoy Easter with my family trying to get my chocolate bunny on. And he's up here calling me a wretched creature. Well, just so you know, I want to let you know, my first instinct as I was planning out the notes on this was to just say humans stink. But I thought that might get me in trouble. So I used John Newton's description in Amazing Grace, right? I used wretched. I thought that would sound better. I thought that might make this foundational truth more approachable, palatable. But what I'm getting at here is though God made man, He looked at it and he said, it is very good ever since sin, ever since the fall. We've been really bad. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scripture that we read together as a congregation just moments ago proclaimed all we like sheep have gone astray. Humans are wretched creatures. God in his great grace Continue to be there and to provide for wretched creatures like you and me and Adam and Eve and everywhere in between. 
Ever since he promised that snake crusher in the garden, he's been providing for a people and they've been holding tight to his promises. I'm going to try to zoom through 3,000 years of history between Adam and Eve and 1 Samuel for us real quickly. So bear with me here. You need to know that God called a special people. He called a people to be his people. God did many great things for them. He delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. He provided for them with food in the wilderness when there was nothing to eat. He gave them his law to guide them and to help them set up their society, to show them their need for him, and also to point them forward to the fulfillment of his promise to bring that snake crusher. He gave them a lot of good things. I'm really shortening the story here, but after traveling around in the wilderness, Israel finally gets to come to a place that's going to be their country for a long term. The Israelites still, though, struggle to be faithful to the Lord, and they got themselves into trouble time and time again. And so God raises up judges to uh, lead Israel. There were people who stepped up when the country was in need of political guidance and uh, discernment in the country. In the Bible, there's a book called the Book of Judges, and it records the history that takes place right before we're picking up this morning in 1 Samuel. You could summarize the whole book of of Judges as basically saying uh, 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 a cycle of Israel's sin. Then they get rescued, then they worship, and then they go back to sin. So on and so forth. It repeats over and over. They sin, they uh, uh, fall into a, a calamity, then they get rescued, and then they worship, and then they go back to sin. Over and over, the cycle continues again and again. Despite everything God had done for his people, they continue on in sin. They were wretched creatures who continued to serve themselves. Rather to the Lord. So that gets you kind of caught up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you haven't turned there, turn there now. Samuel is known for being the last judge in Israel. We're going to see why that is here in a minute. But Samuel was by all accounts a pretty good judge. Israel was at peace for most of the time where Samuel was the, was the judge. But his time of serving in that capacity is just about up. And we're going to bounce through portions of this chapter and see more evidence of this foundational truth. That humans in our fallen state are wretched creatures. So start with me just in the first three verses. When Samuel became old, this is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted judgment. Here we see the first example in our story this morning of human failure. I mentioned earlier that Samuel was a good judge, and he was. Israel was at peace when he was leading uh, in that capacity. But we see the fall of man and the wretchedness of man exposed here in a couple of distinct ways. Number one, you can just underline the first four words. Samuel became old. Remember, we talked about the fall just a couple moments ago. Physical death, this aging that we're dealing with, approaching the end of our days, are physical effects of the fall. Samuel was a good judge and led Israel well, but this time, his time would be coming to an end here soon. And so that's why he sets his sons up down in Beersheba. 
He is uh, knowing that his age is limiting his capacity to serve the area. And so his sons go down there to hopefully share in the responsibility. But that leads us to the second example of fallenness in just these verses. Samuel's sons are wicked. See that in verse 3. They didn't walk in the ways of his father, of their father, but they turned aside again and again. They took bribes. They perverted justice. The whole point of a judge is to lead well and make just decisions without being partial. Accepting bribes is the exact opposite of what judges are supposed to do. Samuel's son, sons were doing the opposite of what they were supposed to do. And this is the pattern that we really see all throughout Scripture. The judge before Samuel was a man named Eli. He too had a couple of wicked sons. They served as priests in Israel. But they stole from the people and they participated in these terrible activities. Eli surely had his faults. And we, we see in these examples, though, all throughout the rest of Scripture, that the faithfulness of our fathers is a wonderful thing. But because of the fallenness, the wretchedness of man, it's not a guarantee that the next generation will follow in the path of righteousness. We're prone to wander off. Our kids are prone not to listen, not to follow. Humans are wretched creatures. The rest of Israel recognized that Samuel's sons weren't a good fit to be judges. And they didn't want to have them in these leadership positions. So they go to Samuel, the judge, and they ask for something different. Look at verse 5. They said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So, we look at this on the surface, this is a very reasonable request. As a point of practical application, you can take this with you when you leave here today. We should desire good leaders. We should want our leaders not to take bribes and not to pervert justice. That is a good thing for us to desire. The Israelites were not wrong to reject Samuel's wicked sons. They were likely afraid that the days would turn back like they were when Eli was there and his sons were running uh, rampant over all the people. The leaders of the land are supposed to uphold justice and we should desire justice. So it was a good thing to want to go a different direction. Now, it's also not even a bad thing that they would request uh, a formal king as compared to the uh, judges that they had for the previous centuries. In fact, we're not going to turn there now, but if you want to make a note, when God gave the law... He gave the Israelites instructions to help guide them when time came for them to have a king. Hundreds of years before this, he gave them guidance on how to go about picking the king. And uh, once they made it to the land that he promised them to have, that's in Deuteronomy. So the problem here is not their desire to have a king. The problem is not not wanting the uh, wicked sons. But the problem here. Showing the wretchedness of humans is threefold. Number one, they wanted the wrong king. And we're going to not spend a lot of time there this morning because this series that we're starting off this morning is going to continue through that for the following weeks here. So they wanted the wrong king, first of all. But secondly, they were forgetting that God is their king. And we'll also get into that a little bit more in a bit here. But the third thing, which we're going to park on for a little bit, is they had the wrong motivations for getting a king. They didn't want a king so that they could have a just and honorable government. 
They didn't even want a king just because of Eli or just because of Samuel's sons. They didn't want a king so that they could have a more centralized government that would make their nation run more efficiently or be respected from outside nations and give them an opportunity to show their God before the other nations. Those would be good reasons to want a king. But they wanted a king for those last few words in that verse. They wanted a king so that they would look like the rest of the nations. They say, appoint us a king to judge us so we are like all the nations. All those other guys got one, so we want one too. We want to look like our neighbors over here. Even after seeing everything God had done for them time and time again, over and over, they said, that's not good enough. Give us an earthly king. Someone to hold the scepter. Someone to go out before us. Their simple hearts were guiding them in their desire to anoint a king. Once again, this is the wretchedness of humanity. And so Samuel, being a prophet, takes Israel's request before the Lord, but he wasn't happy about it. If you read through the next few verses there, you can see Samuel took their, uh, Israel's call for a king as a rejection of himself. But that's another way wretched creatures do. We often try to make things about ourselves. When Samuel talks to the Lord, he's not even upset about why they want a king. He says, they're rejecting me. They want me out of here. We do this all the time. We try to make everything about ourselves. The glaze of sin over our eyes distorts the reality so that we see things as offense against us when we should be seeing them from the perspective of God. That's where God draws Samuel's attention to in verses 7 and following. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they've not rejected you. But they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, and only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. Despite everything the Lord had done for the people of Israel, they still wanted more. Some of the things he did despite following his pillar in the fire through the wilderness, despite the parting of the Red Seas, despite God afflicting the Philistines and bringing the ark home just a few years prior to where we're reading right now, the Israelites still wanted to look like the rest of the world. They still said that king's not good enough. But in their sin, blinded state, they didn't even know what they were really asking for. So I'm going to paraphrase for you the next nine verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel goes back to Israel and he warns the people asking for a king. And he, he says, uh, what's going to happen when they put another wretched man, another fallen creature in that position as king? Having a king will make them look like the rest of the world. But it's going to have consequences. Having a king is going to be giving, asking for a demanding dictator. That king's going to get rich and the people are going to suffer. You're going to be forced into involuntary military service and to work the ways that the king sees fit. It says that the, the king is going to make a slave out of your nation. And then look at verse 18. This is his warning. This is the ending of the warning. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that 
in that day. You would think that giving such a stern warning, giving all the details of all this horrible stuff that will happen if they get this king, it would have been enough, you would think, to dissuade the crowds from following and pursuing a king. Well, we often like to say that about the Israelites. We look back and say, man, what were they thinking? But how many times do we ignore the warnings that are so evident in our lives? Jesus would come and he would say, and then the church would repeat for the next 2,000 years, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And some hear that warning and they heed that warning and they run to the Lord, but most hear that warning and run away. When judgment comes, all will be without excuse. For those who do not heed the warning, when calamity strikes and life is over, you may call out to the Lord, but he may respond, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You never heeded the call. We have been warned. But so were the Israelites. They were warned in our text this morning. How did they respond to the warning? Well, look at the next couple of verses. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Despite the warning, they doubled down on their desire to be like the rest of the world. Even though God had already delivered them and fought for them so many times. He split the seas. He brought them down on the Egyptians. They still wanted a wretched man to fight their battles for them. Because humans are wretched creatures. So God gives the Israelites what they ask for. They get their king. Now, we're going to be looking at the first king of Israel for the next several weeks, so I'm not going to go into much detail into that this morning. But I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert if you were to read through the next little bit here. Things don't go well. By the time we get to the Easter story, about a thousand years have passed. In that time of that thousand years, there's about 42 kings over the the different parts of Israel that would reign most of which do evil and fulfill what Samuel warned them about right here. The Israelites would also be held captive by other nations. The nations would, their nation would be taken over by others. And all the while, Israelites are being called back to their God, being called to repentance time and time again to trust in the promises that God has given to them. Then if you're following along in in the Bible, you get to the end of the Old Testament and all of a sudden there's silence. The prophets stop speaking. The calls for repentance really stop coming in some ways. And then Israel, bruised and dejected as a result of their rejection of the Lord, is left to just slog through existence being ruled by other people. When we look at the Bible, we call this period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament the 400 years of silence. God was still working, but the people weren't listening. One commentary said that those years blinded and deafened the nation to the point where most Jews would not even consider the concept of a humble Messiah. It's dark. But then, after... 400 years of silence. 
came a light in the darkness. A virgin named Mary would be found with child from the Holy Spirit. Not just any child, but a child whose earthly lineage would connect him to the royal line of the Israelite kings. The angel who told Mary about the child said, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, King David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's the house of Israel. He will reign over that house forever. Further, his heavenly status and would be proved by his consummation. He would be holy. He is the son of God. What an incredible thing to behold. That royal child would be born in the room where animals were kept because there was no other room. The angel would appear to shepherds of all people and proclaim the Savior is born in the city of David. And the child would then go and grow and become strong and filled with wisdom unmatched by anywhere in the world. He got older, and when he got older, he would be tempted in the wilderness, much like Adam and Eve were tempted in the beginning of this sermon. But he would be tempted in the garden, or like they were tempted in the garden, only this time, this man, this God-man would not give in. He looked at the tempter, he looked at the serpent, he looked at the snake, he looked at Satan and said, Be God from me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Satan left this deliverer, this Jesus, and Jesus began his ministry. Jesus would call his disciples. He would rebuke the wrongdoings that were going on in the temple. He healed the blind, the deaf, and the lame, and the weak. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He turned water into wine and and fed a bunch of people with just a little boy's lunch. Even the touch of the hem of his garments healed a woman. He casted out demons and did so many wonderful things that all the books in all the world couldn't record everything that he did. He sought no notoriety and yet word spread throughout the area. Then the week of the Passover, something incredible happened. Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding on into town on the back of a borrowed donkey's colt, one that had never been ridden before. Now to us here this morning, it might not sound like much, but that happening, riding in on that colt, was a fulfillment of Scripture written hundreds of years prior to that moment. Scripture said there would be a king coming to town riding on a colt. This was a declaration that the king is here. And the Israelites were here for it. They said, come on now, let's go. They spread their cloaks over the ground. They took palm branches off and they threw them down before the colt so that it wouldn't even walk on the dirty ground. And then this is what they said in Matthew 21. The crowd went before him and they followed him and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Our king is here. That's what they're proclaiming. He's here. We got the king. What a joyous moment. But remember the second foundational truth that we're still talking about. Humans are wretched creatures. The praise the people gave to Jesus was because they, much like their ancestors in 1 Samuel chapter 8, thought that Jesus was the mighty king 
that would make them like the rest of the nations. They thought Jesus to be the messianic deliverer who would lead the revolt against the Roman oppressors. But as the events of the next week unfold, this Jesus would fail to meet their their expectations. Many in the crowd proclaiming Hosanna on Sunday were shouting crucify him days later. Those who hailed him as a hero would reject and abandon Jesus. Humans are wretched creatures. That Jesus, that Jesus I just described, who did all of those things, would go on to die on a cross in front of his own mother. His followers would mourn. His detractors would cheer. The ignorant would mock. Jesus, the one who was to reign over the house of Jacob, who was to be the deliverer, was dead on the cross, scorned by the ones he came to save. Humans are wretched creatures. In our sinful state, we often miss the forest for the trees. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they wanted to be like God when they were already in perfect communion with God. The Israelites wanted to be ruled by a king when God was already fighting their battles for them. The displaced and conquered Jews wanted a king that would lead them on a revolt on Rome when they already were staring at the Son of God standing right in their midst. Even today, People want to shape a God that will serve their own wicked heart's desires when the one true God is no respecters of persons and he in his holiness is better than anything we could ever come up with. Humans are wretched creatures. Understand that. But it leads me to a third glorious truth to share with the church this morning. Third truth is that the king reigns and the king is good. You see, just as we talked about in the Garden of Eden, Easter was a long time coming. Satan and his temptation in the garden didn't foil God's plan. He promised the snake crusher, the savior in the garden. The Israelites in their sin looked beyond the promises that God had given them and wanted to place something other than God uh, and place their hope into a man in their, in their thing there. But it did not defeat God's plan. When God makes a promise, he always keeps his word. Despite Israel's wandering hearts, the Messiah was coming. Despite the civic unrest and the exiles, the Messiah was coming. Despite the misguided desire for a king to overthrow the Roman Empire, the true Messiah was not just coming, he was there. And despite his death on the cross, God is not defeated. The promised Savior arrived and everything unfolded exactly how God intended for it to go. The king reigns and the king is good. Because even though the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, was hanging dead on a cross, that's not the end of the story. Yes, 
Christ was taken from that cross completely lifeless. Yes, he was placed in a tomb. Yes, a great stone was rolled over the face of the tomb to make sure no one got in and messed with it. Yes, all of his disciples scattered and were scared for their lives. Yes, everything seemed oh so dark on that Saturday and that Friday. Yes, all seemed lost. But then, but then, then came the morning. Then came the morning. Shadows vanished before the sun. Death had lost and life had won for morning had come. We can relate it to another hymn. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. What we're doing this morning We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Y'all, this is a victory party. Death had no claim on Christ Jesus. And the wonderful thing about all those who believe in Jesus, who receive him as Lord, who recognize him, not for the little king they want him to be, but for the majestic king he is, everyone, whosoever believeth in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe in Christ, you share in the victory that he accomplished on the cross. Today, we've taken a quick survey through almost all of Scripture. As we come to a close, I want you to know all of it from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is about him. All of it shows the glory of God. To bring salvation and eternal life to a wretched creature like you and I through Jesus Christ. I know that living right here, right now in our day and age can be scary. We can be tempted to put our hope in political figures. We look for immediate answers to the problems that we face when the stock market goes down or wherever or the next scandal hits. We want to find our answers on the nightly news. I want to suggest to you something better this morning. Before the crucifixion, Jesus was interviewed by Pilate, a Roman official. Pilate asked Jesus, he says, Jesus, they say, you're the king of the Jews. Is that true? Look at what Jesus responds. Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Here's what we need to understand. Christ is king. He reigns and he is good. What we have to realize is that his kingdom is not of this world. The things of this life, of this world will come and they will pass. But Christ remains. The Israelites were looking for a king like the other nations. That's not Christ. Jesus is not a king like all the other nations. He is above and beyond anything we could ever imagine. It says he is king of kings and lord of lords. His kingdom is not of this world and it don't look like this world. And that great, powerful, superior, beyond king lived and died and rose again so that all who believe in him would share in his victory. He invites us to reign alongside him. What goodness, what grace. 
You see, our sin proves us to be wretched creatures, stuck in our brokenness. We try many ways to get out. We look to relationships, we look to the bottle, we look to ourselves. And all of those things just lead us back to brokenness. So God, in his great love, promised from the beginning of history to send his son, to do what we could not do, to live how we could not live, and to die in a way we could not die as a perfectly blameless sacrifice. Christ, that middle circle is down at the bottom. Christ came down from heaven, died on a cross, was placed on a tomb, and on that third day, what we're celebrating this morning is up from the grave he arose. So that all who repent and believe, who confess him, who receive him as Lord, shall be restored to God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow, to obey, and to grow in holiness. The king reigns, and the king is good. I say this morning, you've been warned. You've heard every aspect of the gospel. God's given us his infallible word to show us his plan. All I ask is he drawing you to repentance, to see him as Lord. We try many things to escape brokenness, but all of it just leads back to it. The only thing to restore us to the perfect holy God, the same God we were separated from in the garden by the sin of our first parents, is receiving Christ as Lord. Christ reigns and he is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I pray that your word was presented in a way that is understandable. The Holy Spirit would be working on our hearts that those who know the gospel would be inspired to live in response of it and those who are coming to understand it for the first time would be drawn to proclaim your name and to publicly display your goodness. Lord, I pray that this Easter Sunday we would not be so caught up in the festivities that we forget what we're truly celebrating, that up from the grave he arose and in the resurrection of Christ, all those who believe in him are assured of our sharing in the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. Plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. We thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May every moment of our lives be shaped by the truth of the gospel. May we respond to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you rise for this hymn of response?
Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.